Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. It's got to be a do or die effort. It's got to be a determined effort. You've got to show me all the guts and determination you've got in your body. There's a quote by the legendary AFL figure, Ted Whitten, who played and coached in over 550 games at the highest level of his sport. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today. Someone who created history and broke the glass ceiling as the first female AFL president overseeing three premiership wins during her tenure at Richmond Football Club. Our guest today is Peggy O'Neill AO. Chancellor of RMIT University, Chair of Vanguard Superannuation, a consultant to Lander and Rogers, and a board member of Women's Housing Limited and Home for Homes, an initiative of the big issue. Growing up in the United States, Peggy finished a law degree in West Virginia before relocating to Melbourne where she became solicitor and later partner at Herbert Smith Freehills. In Australia, she served on the boards of MLC Super Limited and the Commonwealth Superannuation Corporation, and was also chair of the Law Council of Australia's Superannuation Committee and a consultant to the federal government's review of the superannuation system. Moreover, Peggy was appointed to the Australian Institute of Sport Athlete Wellbeing and Engagement Advisory Committee and served on the AFL's Mental Health Steering Committee. She was on the Victorian Ministerial Council on Women's Equality for three years and was the inaugural co-chair of the Victorian chapter of the Minerva Network. Peggy was chair to the Victorian Minister for Sports Inquiry into Women and Girls in Sport and Active Recreation, and is well known as the immediate past president of the Richmond Football Club from 2013 to 2022, having been made an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2019 for her services to Australian rules football, financial services law, and women in leadership. In 2021, Peggy was awarded Melbourneian of the Year. In 2022, she received Vic Sports Award for Outstanding Contribution to Sport and will be inducted as an AFL Life Member in 2024. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Senegal, Brazil, and Romania, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners Board and Executive Search Firm. In a compelling conversation, Peggy discusses her start in life in a small coal mining town in the Appalachian Mountains to meeting an Australian backpacker in Greece 
relocating with him to Melbourne, and from there, scaling the heights of law, sport, and business. Initially an outsider, Peggy gives us great insight into her storied presidency of the Richmond Football Club, where she set out a new strategic agenda. The pillars for success, the goals on and off the field, which culminated in three premierships in four years under her stewardship. A trailblazer for women in sport, Peggy describes the euphoria of Richmond's success, but also credits mindfulness and a calm approach in being able to transition herself from a self-described imposter to the inner sanctum of sport and business in Australia. More recently, as chair of the organising committee for the now cancelled Commonwealth Games 2026, Peggy shed some light on the behind-the-scenes challenges. As Chancellor of RMIT presents her philosophy on education and lastly provides her view on the nature of leadership in today's society. So sit back and enjoy Bears on Bicycles. Peggy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I haven't seen too many bears on bicycles lately. (laughs) Where did that come from? (laughs) When I first became president of the Richmond Football Club in 2013, and being the first woman who had held that role in the AFL. Some people thought it was unnatural for a woman to be so involved, and they said it's like watching the uh, bear on the bicycle. So uh, I think it was, this is against nature. So I just stored that away, and I thought, you know, I can ride a bicycle pretty well. So we'll just see (laughs) what happens after that. But uh, it is one of those phrases when and I think when you take on a public position like that, you think, how can people who don't know me have an opinion? But they do. And are we seeing more bears on bicycles these days? Yes. Uh, fortunately, we're seeing uh, a lot more women take leadership roles in the uh, in the AFL and across sports generally. I think there's a lot more to do, but uh, there are at one point, there were four of us who were presidents of football clubs yeah. in the AFL. Um, now there are three since uh, I've finished my my three terms as president. And there's uh, a woman who's now general manager of football across the whole AFL down at AFL General Headquarters. We're, we're seeing more. We would love to see more women in coaching positions. And I think okay. with the AFLW, there's some of that, but it's still male-dominated coaching. And I say when we have as many women working in men football as men working in women's football, then that would be about right. But as long as we're still counting how many women are doing what roles, there obviously aren't enough because we're um, they're still they still stand out from the crowd. Well, it's been an impressive story. And I think if I recall, I'm not sure this is true or not, but did you really keep a return ticket to the US in the top drawer at home for three years? I did. Is that, is that true? I did. Uh, well, I was pretty homesick and I moved to uh, Melbourne in August of 1989 and I was required to return to uh, law school to get requalified to practice. And oh, yeah. uh, so I had until February when school started, the university's term started again. And of course, being from the Northern Hemisphere, I assumed everybody started school in September, (laughs) those assumptions you make. No, no, they're they're finishing up the terms coming up, so you'll have to wait. And I had a return ticket then to go back for Christmas, but I was applying for permanent residency, and I couldn't leave the country, it turns out, unless you lost your place in the queue for permanent residency. And and that was another story. And 
And along the way, I thought, you know, if things get really bad, I'll just always keep this return ticket until suddenly I felt at home. I have a couple of other friends who had moved from America at about the same time. We're still very good friends, the three of us. And uh, we thought three years is about when you feel more involved where you are than where you left. If you make a good effort and the three-year mark, you should feel at home. And it was a little before that, but about the three-year mark, I started thinking, I don't really think I need to dash to the airport on 24 hours notice (laughs) and try to use my ticket. But homesickness was quite acute. And, you know, it was the days before the internet. And I remember there were postal strikes fairly often and, and phone calls were very, very expensive to the states and to here and uh, all those kinds of things that just um, made you aware that you were far away from where you'd grown up. So what do you reckon when you look back at it? allowed you to accelerate and do what you've achieved in in this country called Australia? I'd always been interested in living somewhere other than a tourist. I did like travel. I didn't know that I would move somewhere for the rest of my life. So there was a natural curiosity about how things worked. And then once I was requalified for law, I thought, mm, I really need to get a job because that gets you more involved in the community. I didn't know how you went about getting a, a job here. It's a different system. You know, in the U.S., we didn't have barristers and solicitors. You were just a lawyer. So it took me a little while to figure that out. And then I had a job, and then I got all interested in sort of learning a whole new system of a whole new legal system. So that was quite intellectually challenging for me. And, and along the way, I made a lot of good friends. And so I started thinking – Oh, I think I could make a go of it here. And uh, didn't mean I didn't miss back home, but the day-to-day was quite interesting to me. And Australia is a pretty good place to live, is what I found out. It's a, I'm from small, small towns, and so I'd never lived in a city mm-hmm. before. But I thought uh, Melbourne's a pretty civilized place. Things are easy and accessible and compared to big cities in America, very safe. The obstacles to succeed, you've obviously overcome them. Was there many roadblocks? I'm sure there are, which we'll cover off in this journey. Like they say, not too many bears on bicycles, but you've achieved a lot in a very short period of time. Well, I've I've been here 30 years now, so it's not uh, that short a period of time. But um, but I guess that once you find a place where you, for example, work, you enjoy working, and a place you enjoy living, and a place that provides you with a lot of opportunities, then you settle in and enjoy it. And I, for example, I never thought I would want to work at a big firm, but that's where I was offered a job at first. And I realized that big firms have different personalities. And I thought I was doing interesting work and good work. Obstacles, just the the loss of confidence uh, when you come to a new place and you try to figure out the system and and you don't know anyone, you didn't go to school with anyone, all of those sort of natural contacts. Uh, My family wasn't here. But isn't the flip side of that you're redefining yourself as well? Well, yes. You're not, you're not judged by all that le- legacy of the past? Uh, well, that, that's right. You don't have the responsibility of the past. And sometimes you miss that because I remember thinking there's no one here who's witnessed my life in the way that, uh, that in small town America, you knew the space you occupied and you knew the connections everybody had. And some people find that stifling. And for the most part, I found it kind of comforting that uh, small town life where I lived was, um, was pretty good. And you saw, okay. and 
So, uh, but when I moved here, it was moving into something new. I was, I'd always had an intellectual curiosity about the world. And while we sort of spoke the same language, we sort of didn't. And one of the things I did to just sort of document those early days is I kept notebooks of different phrases and what they meant. <laughs> and the other day, I mentioned that to someone and I, I found all those old notebooks. I did 17 of them. Yeah, right. Over those first few years, things I went to, people I met, phrases I heard, and to go back and read it and realize how new everything was. And for example, talking about sport is I went to a seminar at uh, the law firm when I first moved here, and there were all these references to cricket. And I didn't know anything about it, but I thought, well, if a stranger had walked into an American law firm, there probably been a lot of references to baseball, baseball uh, yeah. or football, uh, gridiron. Mm. And so I thought, gee, you start to think your silo is the only silo and that that's the world sort of understands. And being from America where you think you're the center of the world, you think, oh, everybody must do things by reference to us. And it sort yeah, of right. puts you in a place where you think, wow, people around the world do things differently. And, uh, and I, I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, but you're a trailblazer in many ways. You're the first director female of Richmond Football Club. You're the first female president of Richmond Football Club. That doesn't happen without breaking a few eggshells, without putting yourself out there in the right position, does it? Well, I think you have to be open to opportunities that you might want to pursue. I think that when the door opens, if it's something you're interested in, you might just have to walk through and figure it out afterwards. And I think that came, as I said earlier, about when you've lost your confidence. Um, mm-hmm. But then with sport and with Richmond, because I picked them as my team, because when I moved, I moved to Richmond, and yep. that was my local team. I didn't know anything about the sport, really, but I thought I'll support my community club. And people said to me, oh, they used to be good. <laughs> And I back in the seventies, and I and I thought, oh, they'll be good again. I didn't know how long it would take to get good again. I'd always liked sport growing up. I loved sport, and uh, so when I moved here to find that there were professional sport within a ten-minute walk of my house, I thought, well, I'll I'll get involved in what Melbourne and most of Australia gets involved in all the time. And I just loved the sport from the beginning. So it was sort of the passion of the community around sport, the idea that is a collective. And I guess if you're an outsider, you start to think about what are the pathways into your new community. And it turned out to be something I didn't have to work very hard at because I just loved it. So when I was approached about joining the Richmond board, I was already in love with the game. And uh, I was you know, a very avid fan. And in fact, in high school, I like I'd like sport all the time growing up. I was voted most school spirited because I went to everything. (laughs) So that gives you an idea. But in small town America, probably like sort of small town Australia, sport is a real community center. When I was asked to join the Richmond board in 2005, I thought, well, this opportunity is not going to keep coming around. And they were determined to bring a woman on the board, which I thought was quite important, especially at that early stages of the development of, you know, um, diversity and gender equality around board tables. And I thought the worst thing that can happen is 
you're not very good at it, you don't like it, and you go back to just watching the game. I thought I'll take it on, and I was by then I was pretty interested in the business of football. Yeah, um, you know why are some teams rich, and why do some some clubs don't have any money, uh, mm. and how do you uh, build to winning a premiership? How do you select players? What happens to sponsors? Who are the members? Why do some clubs really uh, seem to value and do the right thing by members? Others don't. But I just thought, how do you make money at this? And it's yep. a not-for-profit, but you got to have a certain amount of capital. I didn't understand exactly what role the AFL commission played. So all of that was of interest. And then being a lawyer, I thought governance was really important. And that wasn't something that sporting clubs talked about very much at the time. And I thought, well, maybe that's my role. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do because I certainly can't tell anybody about how to pick a team. But I think I can – I'd worked with boards a lot in my legal role that I could have – make some contribution um, that would be valuable around – governance and getting things set up and with committees and, you know, that that sort of hygiene stuff that you have to do. And if you get it right, everything's easier. And um, so I went about doing that day to day, helping the the president and the rest of the board uh, around that. I thought that's something I can contribute. Were you surprised when you were nominated for president? Uh Yes, <laughs> I sort of was. I'd been on the board eight years by then. And so... Um, it's the fellow directors that elect the president. Mm. And so people knew me and I had done uh, you know, a lot of work around the club and had helped set up one of the fundraising groups. And I'd, so when I was encouraged by the outgoing president to think about it, I thought, again, sort of like becoming the first director, well, there's nothing venture, nothing gained. And if I'm no mm-hmm. good at it, the board will let me know. So I said I would, I was interested and mm-hmm. there were a couple of other people interested and we did presentations. And in the end, the board and all men uh, elected me. And I thought, well, maybe they obviously have confidence you can do the job. And sometimes people have more confidence in you than you have in yourself. But I thought, well, I'm going to do the best I can. And I'm sure that I'll be told whether I'm doing a good job or not. I didn't know that I would be told what kind of job I was doing before the job had even started. But but it was um, yeah, it was sort of a surprise. But at the same time, I, I knew Richmond. I knew the club. I knew that part. What I didn't know was the wider universe. And I thought naively that this will be a story for a week or so, and then it'll go away. Yeah, okay. Uh, and one thing that did give me pause in taking on the role was the media scrutiny that comes with it. And I thought, well, what's there to say? (laughs) I'll just have to go with that. I have a friend of mine, I was talking to him and I said, well, maybe I can get somebody else to do that. And maybe I can get the, and he said, no, no, the role is do it all. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to do it all, then it's not the job for you. And you really need to, you know, it isn't the old job as being a director. This is a new job. And if you can't take on every aspect of the new job, just stick with the old job. That's okay. But I think you can do the new job. And it occurred to me that the reason I was so uncomfortable is because I was going to be required to do some new things. And I was going to have to go through that 
trial and error to uh, mm-hmm. sort of get through it. And uh, so that, that was one of the things that I really had to uh, consider. It was the hardest part of the role, the part about chairing a board, working with the CEO, understanding the club. I knew that. What I didn't know was the outside interest in everything that was AFL. It's quite different being the president than being on the board. Thinking back all those years now, when you walked into that room and presented to the board, Peggy, what was the vision? What did you put forward? And when you look back at it, how much came true? Well, we aren't the, the CEO, so it wasn't that kind of vision. There was no sort of reform. We had reform agenda that I had. I thought we were on the right track. We had done so much work in that eight years. When I joined the board in 2005, we were $6 million in debt. We had only, we only turned over about $42 million as a, an entity. It's one thing that you sort of understand is these clubs, are not big, big organizations. They're small organizations, and the turnover isn't great, but they play a big role in the community. What was the membership like then, too? 26,000, about that, and sort of a struggle to get there. The year before I joined, in 2004, we lost $2.5 million that one year. So um, when I came on, it, you know, the auditor was threatening a qualified audit. Uh, we were going to have trouble getting insurance. So I thought it's not going to be fun for a long time, but there were some really good people on the board. And so we worked to stabilize the finances first. And we went into a very conservative budgeting. Our one pledge was we would incur no more debt and we would never incur any more operational debt and that we would um, budget conservatively and never spend money we didn't have. So that meant we weren't going to be able to invest a lot in football for a very long time while we just tried to get out of debt because the servicing of that debt was really very, very expensive. So by the time I became president, we were working our way out of that. We were debt-free. We had hired a new coach and a new CEO um, in August of 2009, Brendan Gale and Damien Ardwick that same month. And we had started to show progress. Yes, it's... For any organization to hire two senior people like that at one time, you and Brendan had never been CEO and Damien had never been a senior coach. Exactly. Uh, so something went right that month. <laughs> and Brendan's still there. Damien just left and, and I left in December. So a lot had been done and we were starting to turn things around. We had made mm-hmm. finals for the first time in 12 years in 20, the season of 2013. And I became president of October 2013. And I remember thinking, you know, and it's not a basket case right now, <laughs> you know, that there's something to work with. But over time, because 2013, we lost in the finals first game. 2014, we lost in the finals first game. 2015, we lost in the finals the first game. And I remember having a conversation with the CEO and I said, you know, we've, we've made it to good. You know, that good to great is, is yeah. we're competitive and we were happy for a while, but we're going to have to push through this. And of course, he was of the same mind, but it's how do we do it? What are the things we need to do next? Because I think we've done just about all we can with the strategy we're pursuing right now. So you've been a good contender, but you just haven't got the ability to win. And fans, rightly, and I think all of us were disappointed that we never seemed to be able to uh, take that next step. 
and the coach was coming up for his contract renewal. Yeah. And so deciding, mm, do you stick with the same person or do you start all over in football? And so that took a great deal of time and consideration and there was no sort of rush on that decision. Back to what you were saying about what did I present to the board in 2013 was we're on the right track. We're on the right track and we have something to work with that that we could see the next premiership. And of course, our CEO was quite visionary and he had predicted three premierships by 2020. And we were thinking, oh, finals would be pretty good. Uh, <laughs> and that came to pass. Where are you from? Where do you come from? Well, I'm from the Appalachia Mountains of West Virginia is where I was born. And mm-hmm. every time I hear <laughs> that uh, Take Me Home Country Roads, I think, I think I'm the only person who probably has been there. <laughs> and I know, I know all of those things. That was sort of a, an anthem on school buses everywhere to sing that song, the John Denver song. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in the mountains, coal communities. In fact, the town where I was born doesn't exist anymore. It's a ghost town. Uh, so it was all oh, probably 50 people and it was all miners' houses. And my dad was a coal miner when I was first born. Wasn't the whole family historically? Yeah. The, like how many generations of coal mining? Oh, since the early 1800s, I would have thought that was the economy. And, yep. uh, because it's in the mountains, there aren't, there's some farming, but it's not farming commercially or farming for any of that. It's coal and timber, and that was it. And in fact, there's a tiny little cemetery, uh, a family cemetery up on a mountain in Maple Meadow, West Virginia, where okay. uh, my great-grandfather and grandfather were, are buried and uncles. So that was from 1812, I guess. Yeah, right. But they were the relatives from the O'Neill side, the Irish side, were in America before the Revolutionary War. So it was, um, it's a lot, a lot of time in the mountains. <laughs> and what do you say? Did you say the the, uh, the town was the size of fifty people? Yeah, it was all miners' houses, and I uh, started started school there. Your school was pretty basic, from what I've read. Uh, yeah, two rooms. Seven grades, and the new, right? if you made it through that to go to high school, it was about an hour bus ride each way to um, this town down the mountain. Looking back on it, it's kind of an amazing story, but when it's when you're there and you're a child, you just think, well, this is the way people live. You don't have any mm. sort of greater idea. And the, and the mines were still operating then, and, and one of my memories is there was a the railroad which carried all the coal to market, went in front of all the miners' houses. And the school was on the other side of the railroad tracks. And so if the train was moving, we had to wait to go to school until the train stopped. And if the train stopped, (laughs) and this I I do remember doing this, the train stopped, sort of all the mothers would go down to – the edge of the tracks and when they'd go go now and we would we would go under the coal cars and up the other side and go to and go to school (laughs) you serious and so that was um it it sounds comical now and 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 i guess it is but it's pretty um it, it tells you that it was um a different kind of place and yeah, okay. I remember there were also a number of 
ponies that had escaped from the mines over the over the generations, I suppose, and I always wanted one of them. So there were feral ponies that would run through the schoolyard, and we'd all have to go back inside till the ponies stampeded through. It was it sounds kind of ridiculous, but it it was part of that life. And my mother said, no, you cannot have one of those ponies. Uh, so I, I do remember that. But it was um, a lot of freedom, a lot of everybody watching out for each other. And and then my father became a truck driver, and we moved to another town in the region that had maybe a 1,000 people, and then another place after that. So, But I all my schooling was done in West Virginia, and then we moved into Virginia just across the border. It all sort of one side of the Appalachian Mountains or the other, and that's where I went to high school. And What do you reckon when you look back at the values that one gains from growing up in a small town? Oh, I guess a, a sense of self-sufficiency in a way that everybody has to help each other when you're in a town that's that small. Somebody has the chainsaw and somebody has the lawnmower and somebody ha- and you all help each other. Or if somebody's oh, okay. ill and, and um, you all sort of pitch in. And and I think looking back, that was probably one of the things that sticks with you that you're not really aware of until later in life. And you think, well, this is something I should do myself. And sometimes I think, well, why don't you ask for help? And it's like, well, my parents would expect me to do this myself. <laughs> so I think that's one of the things. Um, and understanding the importance of helping others. And I think it was those sorts of neighborhoods and watching my mother and father's example of volunteering and to always uh, thinking no matter how little you have that you can help somebody. And uh, I look back and I think, I don't know how my mother did this, but she was always the one who was getting the Christmas hampers with food put together for people. And I look back and I think, well, (laughs) why did she think you know, we didn't have that much money either, but we had more than most. So the, our job was to help those. And she, you know, volunteered in church school and she volunteered in uh, helping to teach. And anyway, it was a, it was a great example. And my father, you know, taught taught in church and um, uh, the men's Bible study class. And, and church, like sport, is a big part of, of uh, life in those small communities. It's about the only social outlet that you have. But I look back and I think it was always, well, you're supposed to be helping somebody. Yeah, right. Yeah. Academically, you were strong as a, as a young person? Yeah, I was. I, I left school. But how do you go when you're academically strong in a small school in the seven grades? Well, we moved after a year in that school. And I was okay. I was too young to start school, but everybody was going to school. <laughs> so they told me I could just come, and I just kept going. And um, so I was – and there was no kindergarten or anything like that. You just started first grade. So I was almost five, I guess. And so yeah, I just okay. – um, but I remember saying to the teacher, but I don't know how to read. And she said, you come to school, we'll teach you how to read. And um, so I just fell in love with all of that. And my mother had you know, read to us as children all the time. And um, so I just wanted, I guess, to be educated. And my mother and father both uh, were not educated people themselves or was not as educated as they wanted to be. And so they said often, you know, if you want to go to university, you can go. And in America, that's a big deal 
that you have to save money forever and ever. And so there was never any sort of limit on how, if we, and my younger sister uh, also, and there was, I'm sure if we didn't, we weren't academically inclined, that would have been fine too. But it was this idea that you can, you can go as far as you want to go and we'll help you. And um, so I like school. I did well in it. I just wanted to study and read all the time. I wasn't necessarily an outdoorsy person. I'd much rather be inside reading a book or or um, studying something. And then when I went to university, I loved that even more. And then I went to law school and didn't love it all that much, but uh, grew to love it. And then when I practiced law and helped clients, I liked that a lot. So I, I was strong academically, and I enjoy learning now. I If I could have made a uh, a career out of just going to school, I would have. <laughs> Did you build yourself a reputation in law school? Yeah, it was a bit different going to law school. And I wasn't not having, you know, it, I was the first one in my family mm. uh, to graduate from university. So I didn't have an example about what it would be. I didn't know any lawyers. Well, I knew a couple, but they weren't in my family. One of them was um, a family that went to the same church as us, and they were lawyers, so they gave me a summer job to sort of go to the courthouse and help carry books around and things like that so I could watch. It, it's a different way of thinking, and it took me a few months to figure figure that out, and then I liked it. But I remember my first year, it's a three-year graduate degree in America, sort of like the system that's coming into lots of places in Australia now, and yeah. I remember the first semester, and by the time you've reapplied to law school, you're really dealing with people who've done very, very well. And I remember they called us together before they released exam results and said, some of you will never have been second in anything in your life. And this isn't, you're not a bad person, but you're going to not do so well, some of you, and just take it for what it is. And I thought, because my first semester grades were average, and I thought, you know, I've run up against my limitations here. <laughs> okay, yeah. I uh, And then I got in the hang of how you think and how you analyze problems. And so because I, I was more an arts person and it was like, you know, st- structuring uh, your thinking. And, and then I just sort of took to it after that. So the second and third year I liked a lot. Yeah. Where is your confidence at? Because you say you come from a, a family. You're the first member of that family to ever go to university. And I'm sure you're up against a pedigree of people who have historically have had the kids and the grand, you know, the father and the grandfather go to university. Mm. Where's your confidence? Well, I guess I liked the environment of studying. And I guess I'd had some idea that if I worked hard enough, I could do it. You know, I could understand it, which was why that first semester in law school, I was working hard and I wasn't getting the top results like I had been used to. And yeah, okay. it was because you had to be trained in a profession, you had to do something else. It wasn't just reading and writing an essay about something. Uh, where does the confidence come from? Uh, probably, you know, my parents' encouragement all along the way. And then um, there was a, a correlation between putting in the work, finding something you like, and and then advancing to the next stage of that. So um, I guess I sort of relied on I th- I think I'm smart enough to do this. I think I can do it. Okay. What did you specialize in at law? Well, when I started practicing law, I first thought I wanted – I started a law firm, 
And I was the first woman they had ever hired in their hundred years. <laughs> and it, it was the, the biggest law firm in the state. It's a, it's in, a bit of a theme throughout your career. Yeah, <laughs> in the state of West Virginia. It was a big firm. They were, I was the 33rd lawyer, first woman, and they needed someone to help out in tax. And I liked, I, I'd done well in tax in law school and I thought, oh, okay. And, at the same time, there was a, a new specialty that was being developed in pensions and employee benefits and superannuation here and industrial relations. And, and so that tax sort of straddled both of those. And so I thought, well, I'd rather I'd do tax if I can do these other things. And I really liked it because it had a mixture of common law, history. It had a lot of statutes. It had a lot of interpretation. And it was new. So in a way, you're, everybody is studying at the same time or are catching up with the legislation. So you don't have, you're not way far behind on everybody else. No one's been doing this for 20 years. So I, I did that. And then when I came to Australia, it was developing as a specialty here. And so I went into financial services and superannuation. And that's where I've spent most of my career. Okay. In between that age of 21, you pack your bags and shoot off to Greece? No. Uh, well, 21, I saw the ocean for the first time. It was a right? couple of years later that I went to Greece. Um, but uh, yeah, growing up in the mountains, it's not something to do very often to go to the ocean. Some people do, but my family didn't really. On our holidays, we went to see grandma who lived even further up in the mountains and oh, uh, right, okay. and helped out with uh, the garden and those kinds of things. So um but no, I, I really had an interest in the world and in traveling and was a great consumer of news and current affairs. And, and back when there was only a couple of channels, it was, I just, as a 12 year old, 13 year old, I guess I started watching the nightly news every night. And there was a lot going on in America at the time. And so a lot of at that, when I was that age, it was, uh, assassinations of, presidents and and Martin Luther King and all of those kinds of things. So it was very violent, almost revolutionary time in America, and I was really yeah, right. interested in politics. So I was interested in, in the world and thought that, well, I like a small town. I really want to see lots of things. And So, um, so where'd you go? Where would you take off to when you finally had the chance? Well, my, my first trip in leaving the U.S. is I went to Jamaica with some friends because it seemed close enough. But it was in the 80s, mid-80s, and there'd just been the revolution, and and we got really cheap flights because there were still armed guards around most everything. But I had a wonderful time. So that was sort of the beginning, and then I, uh, my friends were travelers, and so the next time they planned a trip to Greece, I went with them there. And uh, then along the way, I you know went to England and France and and Mexico and some of those places. So it was, um, uh, and then it was. Every time I get a chance, I want to go overseas. So what, what value do you place on travel and the perspectives that you gain? Oh, it's um, – well, the perspective is a perspective outside yourself. I think a more accurate perception of assumptions you make if you let – if you use it to examine things that you take for granted – and let it expand that horizon. Sometimes, because it can be uncomfortable, especially if you're traveling a long ways, the first few days with jet lag, you want things to be just like what you left. But if you start to understand that people have solved problems in different ways, people have different problems that your country might have solved, I think it takes away a lot of the fear of the unknown, 
or mm-hmm. uh, you can, no matter whether you've been to the country or not, if you've been out of your environment enough, I think you can say, well, I might not know about that, but I can understand uh, why people might be doing that. And it also gives you, I think, great empathy for how lucky you are. And no matter what you might think has been past grown up in the middle of coal fields and all of that is you have a tremendous amount of privilege just by the fact of being educated and growing up in a in a country that um, has uh, a lot of the services and resources that the rest of the world doesn't have yeah Um, mm. how did you get to australia piggy what's the story there well on my second trip to greece i met an australian backpacker and um he was doing that big australian trip, you know, six months of something. I couldn't believe anybody could travel for that long because I was on the American two-week vacation. And um, I remember he was on his way to Gallipoli and I was going, what's this? Yep. Why? And it was May. It was not tourist season yet. But anyway, so we happened to cross over at a ferry stop or something. He said, oh, I'd be coming to America and, and in a few months. And I didn't think any more about thing about it. And he did. And uh, the next year we got married. Really? One year? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he he was sure he could live in America, but that wasn't the case. And so um, I, after a couple of years of marriage, I moved to Australia and got requalified and thought I'll try to live in the big city. And there you go. And and we aren't married any longer, but I have no desire to, to live back in America. So, Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the story to get to Australia. And mm-hmm. when you get to Australia, you land in Melbourne. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. He had grown up in Melbourne. So start off in Richmond. Right. Now you said you love football. Where, where's the interest? Why do you like this game so much? It's a great AFL. It's a great, it's a spectacular sport. Uh, yeah. When I first uh, went to my first game, uh, I thought, look how big the ground is. And, and there's no offsides rule. They just come at you from everywhere. And we don't have an offensive and defensive team either. They have the one team. Yeah, that's right. And look how how uh, many people are, are are on the ground at the same time. It's like how, how many um, and uh, and all shapes and sizes. And you know, even if you don't get the goal, you get a point for trying hard. And <laughs> there was just a lot of athleticism and speed. And and I just liked it. Uh, and it it was not as well attended then as it is now. So, you know, I uh, became a member and I went, but I remember sometimes, well, we weren't doing very well either. I'd have, you know, rows to myself. And now, you know, you need a reserve seat to get in and and, uh, membership's gone up. So, What year did you become a member? I think it was 93 or 4. Okay, so you're right in the doldrums. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I first uh, moved here and became aware of Richmond, uh, there was a a fundraiser going on and save our skins because uh, the bank was going to uh, foreclose on <laughs> some things, as I understand, and we needed to raise a million dollars in a week. And uh, they, as Brendan Gale tells me, they had the players out rattling tins in the traffic. And I can't quite imagine yeah, right. we would ask players to do that these days. But so I thought, well, I'll support my local club and I will um, uh, become a member and, and, not knowing what that meant, but the club survived, and um, but still, as I just mentioned, had a lot of debt, a lot of other things to to worry about, and was it going to be sustainable? So, how does someone who's got just more than just interest as a fan get into the inner sanctum that you've done? So obviously, you've taken it upon yourself to get to know people, 
to invest a lot of time. It's not that's not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, you you volunteer. <laughs> I went to the games and I loved the games. And then uh, you're losing every week. Uh, well, I went to all of them, everyone that I could. And I realized a lot of it was I was working at a big law firm at the time. And this was a real release to go to the games. It was something that my life started to revolve around. I thought, how did that happen? That suddenly I was, oh, no, I, I because everybody, if you had to work on the weekends, you had to go in because there was no work at home stuff there. And so I worked in the city and I would say, well, I have to be finished by two o'clock because I had to get to the Melbourne Cricket Ground because I want to see the game. You're working six and a half days a week every week, were you? Yeah, pretty close. During that, I, I met a few people and they said, well, you know that you can get a better seat, a reserve seat, if you spend more money. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, okay. Um, and and you, there's this thing called sponsoring a player, and you get to meet a player. I went, really? And and you get a good seat. And you and I, so I thought, well, I'll be a player sponsor. I chose the country guy. Oh, did you? I thought he's from New South Wales. He's from the country, and I'll pick him. Young guy, he was going to university. I thought, well, I'll pick him. And we're okay. still in touch. Yeah, really? After all this time, yeah. So I so I did that, and then I was asked to help with a fundraiser. And being a lawyer, people would ask me to do a little legal thing from here to there, you know, every now and then. And um, and so over time, I guess I just got to be more of the fabric of what goes on there. Uh, but if you volunteer, it seems the football club always has a job for you to do. And was it true when those in that era there was possums in? The gym yes. is that true? Is that all? Is that, all, is that true? No, I'm, yeah, I've seen them. <laughs> uh, they and the I used to walk home to Richmond from the city, and I'd pass by um, the old gym, and there were some bricks missing too, and you could see possum tails hanging out. And I thought this is really pretty bad. This is and uh, and it wasn't air conditioned, and it was um, pretty makeshift. So one of the things is we need to upgrade things. We need to make this a place people want to come to work. So we had a um, one of the fundraising campaigns was to put in new administration, new gym. And then we had another fundraising where we expanded. But those were all happening at the same time. But no, that that's true. And uh, we asked the coach if they would paint the gym themselves. Uh, so <laughs> Good team bonding session. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, what are you going to do all summer? Go paint the. Um, uh, anyway, it needed a lot of work, and you realize how it's hard to take pride in where you work if it's something like that. When did it click in everyone's head or your head? I'm in the business of sport. Like you say, an organization like this relies on a lot of goodwill, right, from a lot of meaningful people, but sometimes the value add is pretty pretty minimal until we actually really start thinking about. We're going to pull this together as pure business leaders in some form, get the support, get the revenue coming in. With that, we can get good players. We can get programs delivered. When did the penny drop saying, look, we don't change. We're in trouble. If we do change, how do we change? In working on, you know, this is the football clubs, we worked on strategic plans like businesses do. And we had sort of pillars. And in my years on the board before I became president, we had strategic mm -hmm. plans. One of those pillars was always community, recognizing our membership's important. The other was diversifying revenue, because you can't just depend on 
match day receipts. And also, you don't want to be dependent on the volatility of whether you're winning and losing. But you find out there's not very many things that that you can do to diversify your revenue streams when you don't have any capital to invest. You know, we need a business that requires no capital. And those are few and far between. It's one of the reasons that lots of footy clubs went into gaming into into pokies because it requires really no capital and it just sends money to you and because of the favorable treatment it gets from most state governments so we looked at revenue there we looked at being a good place to work we and so we started working our way through those but the basic thing is if you can't get financial stability and if you can't have enough money to do the things you want you aren't going to last very long and you're not going to be uh, have much of a future. And the number one thing that the board's responsible for is a club with a future. We worked a lot and Brenda Gale as CEO worked a lot on we need to tap into a different way of thinking. We need to find things, as I was saying, that we don't need capital for. Uh, for example, Richmond started a business of um, running for for town councils all over the state and some in New South Wales. They're uh, sport and recreation facilities where you get a fee. It fit in with what we do, health, you know, health, recreation, uh, bringing together the next generation of sports leaders who might want to run those facilities. And uh, we have more employees doing that now than working at the football club. In one day, once that started and we got two or three contracts, we had three times as many people working in our sport and recreation business than working in football. And that's something that is based in community and it um, doesn't fluctuate. Of course, COVID was another story because everything had to shut down. You had to weather all of that. But right away, we knew that we needed money to invest in football. We needed to look for donors that we perhaps had ignored or hadn't uncovered in the past. And for the board, it was almost always the meetings were about money. Or the lack of. Yeah. And when I hear uh, about the team and the games, we rarely talked about, you know, we knew the win-loss and we'd have someone from football. Coach came three times a year. Uh, The head of football would come and uh, every meeting would come more often if we wanted him to. But most of the time it was, how are the finances? And are we, are we, what's the projection? Are we on budget? Not, but, and, and because sport, and I think it would be the same with every sport, during the game, we would get text messages from the CFO saying, uh, we budgeted 50,000 attendance. We're got 60. And we'd go, oh, we're winning and we're making money. And sometimes you go, we got 60,000, but we're losing. <laughs> uh, so that was a bit bittersweet. But, um, but we were always, the eye was on the business. What's the, um, the differentiating points, do you think, for the product of Richmond versus the others? I think our sort of emphasis on community really was early and consistent. And while you're waiting to win, which can take a long time, we thought we need our members to be proud of things that we do. And so we wanted to have, and and sport gives you a great platform. And you can't hide either. You can't hide. And and so you want to be uh, an example of what your club stands for. And you want the people who work there to be that kind of example. 
but I think that um, the we came we were very early in looking at gender equality. We commissioned uh, a study on what it would take. I think it was titled "What It Would Take to Be the Best Women and." in sport, and we looked at it from a leadership role, not participation. There was no AFLW at the time. So it was just, why aren't women across all sports? It wasn't just our club. And the AFL and the Australian Sports Commission funded it, and we agreed to be the guinea pig to try the recommendations. And so one of those was um, getting women on the board, but getting women on committees, getting women into football roles, and also having the executive at the club have more women. But why do Richmond take a, an American woman if, they, if that's the case? There's a lot of other women I would have thought must have enjoyed. <laughs> well, not a lot, but there would have been some others you must have been up against. So. Well, I've been on the board a long time. Maybe I was the, I was the obvious one. <laughs> but when I left uh, as president in December, there were five women out of a nine-person elected board. Yeah, okay. uh, and across all, and then after a while, the thing was to pull together a pool of candidates so that naturally there would be women and men. And then over time, nobody even thought about it because people would say, well, if I have a chance, I'll, yep. I'll be happy to go through the nominations process. For a long time, in my experience, in all sorts of, um, of sectors, if women don't think they have a chance of getting the role, they're not going to bother with trying. But if you think that you have an opportunity, if it is truly going to be an open process, you're more likely to um, go, go ahead. And then we picked a national charity partner. We became uh, quite involved with um, wanting to work with indigenous communities, not just on sport, but on um, helping to encourage and develop the next generation of indigenous leaders. So we have, and it, it celebrated its 10th anniversary last year, called the Korngamaji Institute, and children 15 to 17 from all over Australia come and spend a week and go through cultural training, health and safety, arts, and uh, some of them come back year after year, and there's been well over 2,000 who have come through that in the last 10 years. Uh, we also have the Melbourne Indigenous Transition School. 22 7th and 8th graders go to school at Richmond every day in our uh, actual building. And they, during NADOC week, have everybody to lunch at their dormitories. And it's in my neighborhood, so I see them going to school and coming back and all of that. So we, we decided that um, that was something we wanted to do more in and and we've been consistent it wasn't something to tick the box and move on and i think after a while people came to trust that we we meant what we said that we stood for and it's a constant you know uh, trying to be to be sure that you don't slip but over time it just became part of who you are and what you do and so i can't imagine that uh, the community aspect would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. But I think that was a real distinctive point for us. You become president. Was there a lot of pushback when you became president? As like you said, first time you're breaking all, all convention here, historically. Mm, well, there was, um, you know, the bear on the bicycle <laughs> uh, comment. There was a few comments along the line by people, again, by people I didn't know um, about, well, who's she? What's she going to bring to it? I now realize I was so much an outsider. I was so different 
that people didn't know what to expect. Was this truly a changing of the past? Uh, was it going to look different? Was if this person who didn't go to school here, doesn't sound like us, new to the game, didn't play, didn't have any brothers who played. We don't, we don't know. We don't know this person. Yeah, it's and, just too drastic, right? Yeah. And, and where'd she come from? So rather than assume it was okay, I think there was an assumption that it wasn't by some parts of the media. And then it was, oh, she's not talking to the media. And then when I gave some interviews, it was, oh, she only talks to the women in the media. I thought, well, I talked to the ones who arrange interviews with the club because the club manages all the media stuff because they give exclusive to some people, not to other. So uh, I started really being upset and thinking in my lawyer way, well, this isn't rational. Why didn't no. they just call me or why didn't they ask for an interview or why – if they don't know me, why do they think I'm incapable? And I was really starting to think this just isn't for me. I don't want to be this upset all the time. I don't want to. And were you always upset? Well, I was always thinking, what do people think? And that hadn't been me <laughs> because what I'd done up until then, well, lots of times I was pushed into new areas, is I thought you had more contact and people could get to know you. Well, these were people where I was probably never going to know them in the same sort of way. And I remember saying to a good friend of mine, in fact, the person who took me to my first Richmond game back in 1993 or whatever it was, I said, um, yep. you know, I just don't think I have the constitution for this. I just don't think I can. And to, yes, you can snap, you know, snap out of it. Of course you can do it. And so I just thought, I'm just going to have to quit listening. I'm just going to, you can't be second guessing yourself when you're trying to do something new. And you, you'll know when you get it right and when you don't, but you can't let other people's opinions make you do something that's not you or try to be somebody that you're not. Because one of the things I've always thought is I had a pretty good sense of myself and I was sort of on the verge of trying to be something to make people like me more yeah, right. people that okay. I didn't even know and I thought this yep. is this is not um, sustainable so um, I had a, f a friend who was in law and then became a mindfulness coach so I did six weeks one-on-one -on -one with him of just calm the whole thing down just calm this just you know stop the train that really really helped because it was like Whew, I got to go give a speech. Let me just calm down for a few minutes. And then suddenly it was, wasn't always easy, but I was, I felt much more capable. And, um, and then another good friend uh, was saying to me, he said, uh, you know, well, every year there's a narrative that's constructed in the media and you're a part in their play. And right now you're their villain. It has nothing to do with you. So just say you're not going to be in their play. And it's sort of hard, but when you turn off everything, it's, and I, I would still get the newspaper and I, I kept a big, um, bin and I would just fold them and put them in there and I, and I've saved them all. And I thought one really? of these years I will go back and read it when it's all over. And so I've got 
every year of my presidency, I've kept all my speeches, all the newspapers, all of that, and the good and the bad. And I thought, someday I'll just go back and see where I started and where I ended up, not in a vindictive way, but just what the pressure was to become something else. And um, so anyway, I saw it through with a bit of good advice from a few friends. And and, uh, and then after a while, you find your feet and and there you go. And and over time, uh, people who said things said other things. <laughs> You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Peggy O'Neill AO. On our next episode, I sit down with Dominic Barton, chair of Rio Tinto and chair of LeapFrog Investments. Australia has transformed China. Whenever I'm in Shanghai or in Beijing, whatever meeting I say, look out the window and look at all that steel in those buildings. That is courtesy of Western Australia. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show. Peggy, the the mindfulness coach, can you talk us through a little bit about that? What do they take you through? Um, As you say, you're putting you back on the tracks. You weren't derailed, but you're just losing a bit of puff to get up the mountain. Well, I think it was a bit of um, anxiety about um, uh, instead of knowing what you're going to say, you were going to be reactive or, but a lot of what we did was just calming yourself down and uh, in the moment, just thinking, okay, it's the the routine, you know, the the breathing, the um, uh, making your brain stop. And I remember one time he said to me, um, well, relax your face. And I thought, I don't know how long it's been since I ever relaxed my face. It was like, oh. Uh, And so I realized it was like, oh, you must have had a lot of tension that you just forget about. And so a bit of it was just learning how to relax and relax more completely. And before you give a talk, if you're relaxed and your brain's not going a million miles an hour, then suddenly it's just easier. You know, it doesn't mean it's easy, but it's much easier than when you're sort of fighting with yourself internally because you're leaping ahead or you're out of the moment or you're anticipating bad stuff before it happens. And and um, so that's held me in good stead. Can I ask you about, because I had a chat before I came here, uh, a couple of ladies mm-hmm. at the office said, um, can you explore imposter syndrome? That women suffer from imposter syndrome. Comes up all the time. I've heard it about five times in last week in interviews. How does one overcome it? How do you negate it? For me... You think, what is imposter syndrome? If you're not trying to be an imposter, if you're not trying to be somebody else, then you don't really think about it too much. There's things about, am I the right person for this job? But I think more about based on skills, like, is this something that I don't have the skills for? Well, I might be able to acquire those. And sometimes you're in a job where you think, I just don't like the job. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't fit because it's not for me. Yep. Uh, but I think it all comes back to who do you think you are in the in the nicest possible way? What is, who are you? Yeah, but what's holding me back from putting my hand up? Yeah, and I, I think sometimes, and I think we all think about this, is we fear failing. But I think over time, you start to think that failure is just – the price you might have to pay to finally achieve something, you know, that you fear failure, but you got to get through that to achieve something. And, um, and I think 
many times when I've taken on things, as I've said, if I fail, I'll just go back to what I was doing before. But I might not fail. I might achieve something great. I might be do something that you know leads me in another way, or or I learn a lot, or I meet a lot of new people. Um, but you've got to be willing to accept, in most cases, the very small risk you're going to fail, uh, and you know that. But you've got to to be willing to to take that risk and to say the worst thing that can happen is I'm no good at it and I go back to doing something else. So that analogy then, early days as president, Mm -hmm. what were the failures which actually turned into (laughs) successes? Oh, the early days of president, the club was going pretty well. I mean, the failures were, I don't mean this the wrong way, I don't think that there were my failures necessarily. There were things that for the business weren't, we were doing well, as I said, but we need to take that next leap. And along the way, we found people who had that same vision, who wanted to be part of that. And some people mm-hmm. wanted to more traditional. And so, uh, you know, you sort of self-select at that point. Do you want to be with the new or because we weren't going to be the old and we weren't going to slip back into that. And we weren't going to be, I guess, swayed by popular opinion about what we should be. You know, we if we had to creep along to get there, it's better than thinking it's going to be an easy fix because it was never an easy fix. And and then there were, you know, times where in 2016, for example, we went backwards. We didn't make finals. We just extended the coach. There was a lot of conversation about get rid of the coach, get rid of me, get rid of Brendan. Yeah, but that just sells papers too, doesn't it? It does. It does. And it's a terrible thing not to give people the benefit of the doubt. They're, they're humans. And these are jobs. And I've never known anybody in a football club who didn't care more than the members cared about doing the job well. And no player goes out there to do a bad job on the ground. That That's a really disappointing thing. And even now, the go for the coach, go for the coach, go for the coach, and things will be good. And I remember talking to um, the board and to and to the CEO. And and so we can't keep starting over. We can't every five years just get a new coach and think. And uh, the CEO did a, a wonderful piece of work because the board asked him to look into the past. And every time we fired a coach, and we fired a lot of coaches before I was there, we never got any better. We never got better. And then if you'd build over a, a couple of years, you'd be sort of on the cusp of doing better, but you hadn't reached what somebody wanted. So you fired that coach and then you started again. We looked at or asked uh, Brendan and the head of football to look at what is it that we need to do to make football successful? It's not who do we need to get rid of. It's what do we need to make them successful? We want them to be successful. And they were willing to help because it was, we want you to succeed. So help us understand what more you need. And we had it's sort of, you know, the feeling about things that needed to change, but we needed s- some evidence. So Brendan went, in effect, a gap analysis. What do we do really well? Who not just in the AFL, but who in sports world does things better? Who? What were the characteristics of successful teams around the world? And Brendan identified someone who had a consulting business and he had worked out, he had a methodology. And so interviewed dozens and dozens of people with Brendan, put a report together, sort of told us what we thought. But the one thing 
was the coach is the right person. (laughs) Changing the coach, it just makes you realize that you want to change the things that will matter, but you don't want to change things that are your strong points. And the coach was, the players loved him. He worked really hard. He wanted to be a lifetime coach, but there was leadership lacking on the ground. We needed to get some new thinking around him, but but he was the pivot point. So we kept him and changed some people around him and some other things, put a lot of effort into leadership in the department, in the club. I can't say that cost us to win a premiership the next year, but we did. And Damien Hardwick had to change himself. And I had read about a course at Harvard Business School called Authentic Leadership that Bill George has run for years and years. And so the CEO thought it'd be a good idea if Damien went to that. And okay. he he wasn't really enthusiastic, but he went. And it, it changed him. It changed okay. his approach to things. It changed his idea of what how he could be at his best as a coach. And um, so all of those things came together, but it wasn't one big thing, but there were lots of little things that people had to buy into. And one of the things that Damien's philosophy changed is it really needs to be fun to come and work. You got to be excellent at what you're doing, but those players have to really want to be there and like each other and be together. And uh, part of that was saying not everybody is the winner of every game. Everybody's got a part to play and the role playing and, and designing a style of play around the team that you had, not the team you wanted to have. And, um, and right away when preseason started, it just felt different. And people were saying to me how it, it was a happy place. Yeah, it was right. all of this. And, and I thought, well, well, that's better than last year where everybody's just dying to get out of here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, so a lot of things were around. So Damien that. is what excellence without happiness and then changed to excellence with happiness, did he? With happiness yeah, right. and, uh, and understanding each other better that we're not just, um, playing for a few hours, and then we leave. And this connection, this strong understanding of each other, like uh, one uh, person, one of the players um, said that he didn't realize until that year, 2017, that the year before, mm-hmm. the guy with the locker next to him, his father his, was really, really ill. But that, but yeah, right. a lot of times indicating you had an issue at home or you were worried was seen as a sign of weakness and that would you might be yeah. ruled out, you know, that silly kind of stuff. Oh, it sounds silly, yep. but that was the way it was. Instead of saying, listen, if you're having trouble, now I understand why you're not playing your best. Let me help you. And so that it just became a much more empathetic place, I suppose. And a lot of things flowed from that and storytelling and the importance of people buying into a story. What does that mean? What's storytelling? Um, well, Damien spent a lot of time, a huge amount of time, in having a theme for the year about climbing the mountain or stoicism or something. And every week, he yeah. would have a little lesson about that. Because when you look at a team of players, they were all men at the time, um, Is yep. there's all kinds of academic backgrounds, all kinds of literacy and numeracy. So how do you communicate to everyone that they can understand other than just put plays up on the board or something? And one of it is you buy into the emotion of the storytelling, of the story that's being told. 
And uh, in fact, the players would get up and talk about there was, they called the Triple H, the hero, hardship, and highlight of your life. And they would stand and talk about it. So you get an idea who that person was. And then it wasn't just the guy. It was a real person. And they all knew and supported each other in different sorts of ways. So there was a lot of that personality or allowing your personality to come through and your shortcomings to be understood that made a difference. And it, it went through all of the rest of the time that um, that he was there. And now lots of other clubs you hear are doing the same sorts of things because you do get results in forging a team, which is what it's about. But you got to move on to the to the next thing too. It's not all just about that. But but excellence is assumed. You can't let that um, uh, be a substitute for excellent performance. But it's how do you get that excellence in a way that's fun? How do you see the role of a president of an AFL club? What is the actual role? Because it's changed over the years, as you said. It has, it has. And um, and it was different when it was amateur days where the president was, in fact, the CEO. The president did everything and they were around. And, and probably probably funded half of it as well in the old days as yeah, well. Yeah, and they were there every day and they were in with the team and they were doing all of that. Uh, and sometimes that, that notion still persists. And some of the questions I would get in the media sort of had an idea, you've never really worked in a modern football club, have you? Because that isn't something that that you would do as a as a president and i remember once saying to someone so if i'm doing that what's brendan gale doing you know i was like <laughs> we have people who are very highly qualified and capable and well paid and i always think that the people like to work in places where they can where they can do their work where they don't have someone coming and saying well i don't agree with that or you know um and Sometimes Damien Hardwick would tease me and say, now, who am I going to leave out this week, Peggy? And I said, if you're asking me, you are in real trouble because <laughs> <laughs> that's what we pay you for. But I think the role of the president is to make sure the board's functioning well, to be sure that um, the issues coming to the board are fully considered in making important decisions. And there's also this public aspect about being an ambassador for the club yep. and lots of contact with members and being available, lots of keeping information flow going. I instituted doing a letter to members three times a year, do a Q&A on a, online. It, it was about, it, it, otherwise people think you don't care or they think you're hiding something. I used to be really offended when I think, why do they think I'm hiding something? I'm telling you what I know, I just don't know. And, and I realized it was like, you just got to keep information going. And once those uh, started being available on a regular basis. And I had an email that people could send in questions. And when I collect enough, I would answer them. So I think that's a big part of being a president. You meet sponsors. I used to have dinners after board meetings, probably two-thirds of the time. And I'd yeah. invite different people to come and have dinner with us so we'd get to know each other a bit better. Uh, I thought early on that uh, when the times get bad, we want people to know us. We want to have the benefit of the doubt. And sure enough, times get bad. And, and at least they've met you and might give you, you know, talk to someone else and say, well, I met them. They seem like decent people. So I think the president has a role that is it's sort of like the chair of the board mm. in any company. But the public role is a bit different because your shareholders are your members. 
and you're sitting at games with them all the time. The shareholders of um, BHP don't get together every week and sit with the board. <laughs> and can, and probably a little bit more passive as well, too. That's right. They wanted a financial return, and football club members want an emotional return. So it's a it's a sort of complex role, and people bring their own sort of views on that. But um, but I see it as primarily governance role and an ambassadorial role. Relationship then, how do you form the relationship or bring the best out of the CEO? Because you can't be best friends. No, no, you can't. I would say (laughs) we're friendly, but not friends. Okay. Um, And uh, you want to be accessible and you have great respect for one another. And so trust is important, but you have to be able to talk things through, to hear the bad news, you know, as well as the good news, to feel that they can do their job without you cutting across it as a president. For example, if Brendan had talked to the head of football about something, then I couldn't go and say, well, that's not right about money or something like that that I might actually be accomplished in because he's the one who's running the place. And I think that we made the CEO our focal point. So he was to carry out the instructions of the board, okay. and then we knew who was accountable. And he's a wonderfully accomplished person, a great leader, and he evidenced the values that we wanted uh, for the club every day. He reinforced them every day. He uh, was a great contributor. And in 2015, uh, it was the first time we made the CEO a member of the board at our discretion. Because I think there's no better way to get information flow than to have somebody with the same joint and several liability that everybody else on the board has. But I think it's that that relationship between the chair and the CEO of any organization is a really crucial one. And a lot of it is based on trusting each other uh, so that you get bad news, good news, and you can talk. And so I, I had that relationship with Brendan and enjoyed it, enjoyed it all the way through. Well, I guess those those conversations must have been pretty interesting during those tough times when you had to make a call, as you say, or were encouraged to make a call regarding your coach. Yeah. And yet, as you say, after doing your homework, it doesn't make necessarily a lot of sense. How tough was it? Because of all the work that had been done leading up to the decision, and because we, as a board, took several months to make the decision, and it was a collective decision. And then we decide, is it a one-year extension, a two-year extension? What do we want to do with this? It was, in the end, to say, yes, we're going ahead. And we talked about, what if we go backwards? And it's like, well, we'll just have to ride that out. We think that we that he's the right person, and he, we will recover, and we'll go ahead. So in the end, it wasn't so difficult because the hard work had been done in the lead up, mm-hmm. I guess. And because it had been a collective decision, when th- when times got bad and the call came to get rid of him, we never talked about it again on the board. It's like, remember we said we'd ride this out. We said, you know, nobody said, oh, you didn't ask me or I was, because of the time we took that everybody had said that decision was their decision. And we never really thought about it again. We got a contract. We've extended him. We'll ride this out. And does the heat come on pretty badly from the external stakeholders? Those who are investing, the only the support. Well, there were a few who went to the media. I think there were three different groups that were trying to ask the board, or at least some of us, to step down. Oh, I spill it. And, and, 
Yeah, that sort of thing. And as a lawyer, I thought, I'm not even sure that I legally can do that. But secondly, every year, three people um, rotate on the board and there's an election. So if you get elected, fine. But we were elected and so we're not going to uh, stand down. And when the next election came around, nobody ever ran. Uh, so it was, if you're not willing to go to the members, and if the members want to turn us out, I'm happy to go with that decision. But we're not going to turn ourselves out just because you have gone to the media and made a big fuss about it. So, and that, that, that you know, there's real strength in unity, mm-hmm. the board being united. And most of the time, in, when you read about sporting clubs that are having trouble, it's because something splinters on the board yep. and somebody wants to go with the new and somebody's here and somebody's there. And, and will you make me the new president or something? But when you're together and the collective is very strong, it's uh, really powerful stuff. When did you start to see the raw starting to come? The positives. <laughs> like, you, like you said, you just got over this big decision. You've made that. Yeah. Uh, and this consistency now, finally, as you say, consistency of message. It probably was about halfway through 2017. Mm-hmm. I can't say I thought that, you know, we say the roar, when were we going to realize what we thought our potential was? I thought that we were playing pretty well. There was a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of good people had come to the club. Is business going up as well? Sense of yeah, revenue? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, with our community programs, what we found is our membership, even when we weren't winning, every year we'd get record membership. Okay. It kept going up and up and up and up. And we got in a final, went up a little bit. We lost that final. The next year went up a bit, went up a bit, went up a bit. And um, before we won the grand final in 2017, I think we were to 90,000 members. Pretty close. Yeah, wow. And then we broke 100,000, and we have, I think, five years in a row now. But so that was going there. And again, because of community and because of the way that sponsors consider those things now, our community programs are very important to sponsors. They wanted to be uh, associated with clubs that were sort of fulfilling what they wanted to do in communities. Will you partner with us in communities? So I, I remember I was, uh, I'd gone overseas for someone's birthday. And I watched a game early in the morning. We played Port Adelaide in the middle of season 2017, July or something like that. And we won, and we weren't expected to win. And we won every other game after that. And I, but I remember thinking, boy, I did. They look really good. And then it was just so. By the time we got to the finals, I thought if we win the first one, we're going to win a grand final this year. We're just going to keep going. Um, so I've. I was pretty relaxed by the time we got there. But I, I think it was the middle of that year when you could see things coming together. And uh, it wasn't just football, but there was sort of a, a different um, enthusiasm, a different you know vibe about the place. And, um, and things were starting to hum a bit. Is it contagious? When you walk through, do you feel it? You do. You do. Yeah, there's a bit of energy, a bit of, you know, uh, you know happiness is contagious. Just, just liking coming to work. If you're liking it, other people like to be around people who are um, having a good time. And uh, it didn't mean it wasn't serious, but it meant that people had a, you know, this is sort of, we were on our way to sort of finding our, our purpose. We had a purpose, but we hadn't articulated it as to, you have to feel it to sort of then go into what, what is it that we're 
that we've done that led us here. Let's examine how we, is there some secret sauce here that, that caused us to win? And we spent a great deal of time across the whole club the next year. And our purpose was connecting to thrive and win. And there was a big launch among the staff, the football department, all the players, everybody came together. And uh, we went back to the middle of the MCG. And we'd only been there before all of this was when we won the grand final a few months earlier. And we put all this stuff up on the big scoreboards. And it was sort of deliberate, you know, connection was the important thing, how this connection had been formed. And it was connecting among the staff, it's connecting with our members, it was connection in lots of ways. And then thriving was connection allowed the thriving and whether that was thriving uh, as employees, you know, that you you develop as a person, you grow as a person, that our communities thrive because of the effort we put into them. And then you thrive and you win. And win is last because that happened because all the other things were in place. And you win on the ground, you win financially. Um, it, it, so it, it was a deliberate placement of words, and we decided that's that articulated our purpose. Grand final day, 2017. Mm-hmm. What's going through your mind that morning? Well, <laughs> again, none of us had been to a grand final. There was nobody in the club that had any grand final experience. The coach had played in a grand final, uh, but there was uh, so... So the old cliche is you've got to lose one to win one is coming out left, right, center probably? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, you know, we, we made it. We never thought we'd be here, blah, blah, blah. I was really pretty confident. I had my, what I do every Saturday, I went to Pilates class <laughs> and, and I then went into, uh, came back, walked down to the, walked down to the, um, stadium yep. and went to the AFL lunch, which went on forever thinking, you know, let's just cut to the chase. We just want to play the game, want to play the game. I had a schedule. If we win, this is what happens. If we lose, this is what happens. And so you had to be at this place at this time, at that time. So I was going to be right on time. And I just, I had a wonderful time. What was going through my head was I never thought we'd be here. I thought I'd be really nervous. And I used to um, joke with friends. I said, you know, I've if we were in a grand final, I don't think I'll make it to the ground. I think I'll be hit by a car on Punt Road. I'll just absentmindedly walk out in traffic or I'll have a heart attack uh, along the way. And so when I got there, it was like, no, you know, I, we're supposed to be here now. You know, we put in the hard work and we're supposed to be here. And it never occurred to me that we would lose. And I remember saying to Brendan Gale, oh, we're home now. You can't say that. You can't say that. That's jinxing the football gods. And but we did. What was the emotion like when the siren rang? Well, because I had this schedule to keep, <laughs> I thought we went down to the ground and got pictures yep. and we did all that. But right when it happened, I was just really proud, but I wasn't that kind of emotional crying. Uh, Brendan was crying, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but you know, it's different if you've played and you've been, you know, it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was like, well, we, we said we would do this and we've done it. And now we need to go to these places we need to be, and we need to talk to these people, and we need to get to the media. But then um, after the media finished, it's probably about Wednesday, and I was home, and I watched a replay. 
And I really welled up with emotion because you could see the faces, you know, when you see it on television, you see the people and just knowing how hard people had worked is I really was moved then more than in the moment. I guess it just hadn't hit me at that time. So, Did you get knocked over by the, the feeling from the community, Peggy? Now, for some people, yes, it must have meant everything. Yes. It's what, 37 years. A lot of, as you say, a lot of people, it's so, so, so important to them. Yeah, yeah. The enthusiasm um, in Richmond, because we were having uh, a reception at Crown Casino uh, for the families and for all the players and some of the sponsors. And so I thought, oh, I'll go home, change clothes, and then go to the casino, go to the reception. I couldn't get home. There were so many people stopping me on the way uh, through Richmond. And I thought, I can't get any further than this. So I had a friend who lived on that street and I went to her house and said, can I just sit here for a few minutes? Cause she was going to go to the reception too. And I said, I just need to collect my thoughts because I'm going to have to say something when I get up on stage there. And so we then had to drive all the way through the city to get back around to uh, Crown Casino because there was no way, but I could hear all of the happiness on Swan Street. And we had told Yarra Trams that they probably needed to stop the trams because it was going to be like that, but they didn't believe us. So the crowd stopped the trams and people were just having the absolute best time. It, it went a bit wild and all of those kinds of things, but it was uh, a huge outpouring of emotion. And then the next day I walked back to the ground to do um, family day where oh, yeah. we, people who didn't go to the reception could come and bring their families and the players were all there and and um, on the way down, it was just an overwhelming sea of love <laughs> uh, and getting stopped. And it's almost every day now I still get stopped by somebody. And it, you think you don't know me, but you love the club. And at this moment, I'm a symbol of that success for that those years that meant a lot to everyone. And one of the things that impressed me is I got lots of letters from members along the way and not to do with the grand finals, a lot with that, but some were just families who wrote when a relative died right. and talked about the good times they had at the football and just wanted me to know how much it meant to them that they were able to go to games together. And that's what they recollect. And I think we all have that. If you like sport, if you have no other thing in common that you can talk to your relatives about that sort of thing. So it sort of made me realize how, what an important place clubs can play in people's lives and that you're a symbol of that and that ambassadorial role in that moment when they approach you that tells them everything they are going to assume about the club and you can either brush it aside or whatever but in that moment you're part of their happiness and even if you aren't happy that day <laughs> you sort of rise to the occasion and it makes you feel good it makes you feel good so um it's um it's it's interesting how that sort of affection gets transferred, but um, but people love the club, and when you and other clubs will have the same sort of stories. But I was just overwhelmed, and still am, that people come up to me and talk about what they were doing in 2017 or 2019. Well, let's talk about that 2019 and 20, 2020. COVID. Yeah, 2020 tough. I mean, I mean well, both are still pretty tough, right? You, you won the flag back to back. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty impressive, <laughs> I must say. Uh, I didn't see a game live in 2020 because of COVID, because they um, 
had games without crowds, and we were the first game of the season, and we were told the day before that crowds weren't going to be allowed. Yeah, right. And thought, oh, well, that'll change. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then they called the season off for six weeks, and then they moved everybody to Queensland. And I could have gone to Queensland, but I had other work to do, and I, and you didn't know how long you were going to be there. First, it was going to be 28 days, ended up spending 120 days up there. And then there was a window of opportunity to go again, and I, I just thought I just can't think about spending six weeks and I could go and then we don't make it into the finals or something and then I'm just up there and I don't know if I can get back into Victoria. Anyway, it was one of those sorts of things. But um, uh, but I think when football started again, that it really gave people something interesting and fun to do when, in COVID. But during this period, you, you, how, do you, how are you engaging with your members? It's a different engagement now, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, a lot of, well, people had bought memberships and well, thought they the had ground. access to games. And it just shows sort of how happy people were with us that, oh, I don't know, a handful of people asked for their money back. Others just said, you know, this is our financial support for, the, you know, we'd won another grand final. Yep. And it wasn't that. But I think everyone, this will be temporary. I mean, we want the club to keep going. We know we'd had the horrible situation of having to let go about a third of the staff because we didn't have any functions anymore. And the AFL was telling everyone to, you know, bare bones uh, in the clubs. And for example, we have an event staff, but if you aren't going to hold any events, uh, and you know, then there was, then we were eligible for job keeper and sort of those kinds of things. But, but it was just so new to deal with. And then when football came back and, and, you know, still no vaccinations, um, people weren't wearing masks. People had to, uh, use mops and buckets and clean up all the space when they were training. Mm-hmm. And then the other person, it was just, but everybody was committed to keeping the game going to the best they could. And it would have been nice to see something live, but I wasn't, I didn't get to. But 2019, we um, had a, a really good season. Probably our best home and away season was 2018 when we failed in the preliminary final. Yeah. We were just flying. And I know the coach uh, said a couple of times after that, we were going so well that we didn't change anything and huh. we should have changed something. Uh, but you know, why tamper with success and blah, blah, blah. And so, um, then 2019 was that, you know, we, we've got another chance at this and we played really good football that year. We had a, it was the first time we'd had a lot of injuries and we had to work through that, but we did. And then we had a great final series. And, and I remember, um, in 2020 with COVID and all that and, and Brenda Gale saying, but, you know, we could go back to back. And I said, Brendan, I don't even know that we ought to be playing. I said, we'll have another year. This is me. We'll have another year. I just don't want people to feel under more pressure than they always are, already are. It's a very scary time. Yeah. He goes, no, no, I'm not giving up. I think we can do it if we start playing again. And we did. And I remember he called me <laughs> from the after we'd won. And I said, you know, you're right. It does make a difference, doesn't it? It's You feel different that this is sort of – the stamp of yes, this was uh, an exceptional team. Well, it was unbelievable, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Um, Players—they're vulnerable as well, aren't they? Yeah, they've got a great—they got you know the great opportunity to be heroes one week, according to the press. They use that kind of language, and next thing they're almost in the gutter. You know, the following week by a photo or something like that. 
what how does the club keep them balanced or you know the work behind it because it must be so invasive and your confidence must go up and down different personalities and I think sometimes we just we've just lost sight of what the press does to people uh, I, I, th- I think you're right. I think it gets out of hand. Uh, you know, it's the same person. And, and again, not treating them in a way that you would treat a stranger even, you know, about the benefit of the doubt and, and wanting to have the villain and the hero in every piece. And as we know, you know, mental health issues with athletes is, is rife. Yeah. And a lot of work goes into giving them that kind of support. And I think people tend to think, you're you're an athlete. You're young. You know you got to be indestructible. Uh, everything everything's going well. What do you got to complain about? That it's something some cause and effect because uh, because you don't have financial worries, you ought to be happy. Uh, I think people project whatever their worry is. You don't have my worry, so you ought to be happy. Right. But the pressure on them, whether from the media or their own t- internal pressure of being an excellent athlete and wanting to sustain that for as long as they can or and the ones who are on the margin about getting picked for the side or are you going to or what's next or are they going to trade me it's the uncertainty of that sort of thing that's out of your control and one thing about forging that connection among teammates means that you're more aware of people's situation and the training for uh, the coaches and assistant coaches to recognize things in a way, not to wait for people to come to them, mm-hmm. but for them to say, is something wrong? Do you need help? And then having psychologists on staff, having access to others outside if they want to go external and, and that sort of thing. But for it to be accepted that you can say, you know, I'm struggling here and I am going to need some help. And I think more and more we're starting to see people not be ashamed to do that, and and I think that's a sign that perhaps we're maturing about those sorts of things. But when people are uh, writing things in the press in a very, I guess, disparaging way or a judgmental way, um, I think, well, what would it be? How would you feel if somebody wrote about you? And how would all of us feel if somebody was watching us at work every day and writing about how we were going, I think that um, we lose sight of the humanity of uh, sports stars. So we've talked about why I want to become a member of Richmond. Why would I want to play for Richmond? I've got choice. Why, why did I want to play for Richmond? Is it the family club mentality? Well, I don't know. We say family. I think, well, what is family values? You know, it's not... It doesn't revolve around just that. It's, uh, I think it's, it's community values. I think it's, uh, a spot for everybody, whether you're in a traditional family or not, that, uh, I've, I've often said, if anybody wants to barrack for a club, I want them to think they can come to us and that you know, they'll be welcome. And so, uh, why do you want to play? Because I, I, a lot of people self-select about, where they want to be, mm-hmm. and if that's the kind of values that you have. Uh, but if you come to Richmond, that's uh, to play. That's what we will instill in you, that everybody is is uh, valuable and that your job is to make them understand that. So sometimes it goes, there's the connection. And last year in the club, we did a 
a bit of reading together about belonging, you know, belongings beyond the connection stuff. And Owen Eastwood has written a great book on belonging. And he spoke to us about the book online. And uh, the players read it, the coaches read it, the board read it. And it was about belonging, building that sense of trust. And the club I know right now is moving on to that next stage of of why would you want to play for us? Why would you want to be a member is because it goes much deeper than um, just paying your money and going to a game. What about when they finish? We hear the tragedy, a lot of them struggle as you talked about mental well-being. They come off the high of the, you know, being superstars in the press every day, suddenly only you know once in a while in the back column. Does Richmond think about that 15 years on for those those individuals who supported and played for their club, or what, what happens these days out there? Yeah, well, we have um, uh, player development managers through their career, through their career as a player, yep. uh, to try to help them identify what they might want to do to start on a degree, to start on a traineeship, to work with their managers. Most of them have managers about what we can do to make sure that they're set up for after football. And then the AFL Players Association also has a number of programs that they can take advantage of as well. We also have a past players association that that, uh, reaches out and has functions from time to time that's becoming more active. And also, um, one of the things we started when uh, I was president, it was a thing called Homecoming Hero. And at every home game, we have a past player come back and we, you know, fate them and they kick the first goal before the game starts and the family comes and oh, okay. we have, have them for lunch and, and those sorts of things. And that's sort of one off, but we want them to think no matter what era you played in. And the same with administrators, CEOs, presidents. Everybody was doing their best, and where we are because of you kept trying and you worked hard for the club. So we want everybody to come back. We want everybody to feel at home, and and so we we invite them. And the idea there'd be hard feelings or somebody had the board coup who threw over through someone else is we just got we'll just be past that. And you're welcome. All of you are welcome, and you can decide whether you want to come or not. But uh, but players in the end of their careers is um, is 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 an issue. Uh, but I think more and more uh, often is they have uh, a pretty good idea and some credentials about what they want to do uh, when they leave the club. Peggy, you've had a better view than all of us. When you watch the preparation, the mindset, what does it take or what stood out in sense of stories or over and beyond or paying, uh, playing through pain in some cases or rebounding back from a bad game? What did you see? Would, was there any particular individuals or personalities or surprises you must have seen during that those three grand final wins about selflessness i've seen quite a bit of that um there was a um in our 2019 preliminary final we had a a player jack graham who was injured but we didn't have a substitute anyway he kept playing with a bad shoulder injury and kicked a couple of goals and got us across the line. So we're in a grand final and he can't play because he's injured and he's gone through the whole year. He's done that. And he was given our Francis Burke award, which is the most courageous player. And he was 
the youngest player in 2017. It was his fifth game, and he kicked three goals in that grand final. And then 2019, he didn't get to play in the grand final. And then 2020, he, and he's still playing. Uh, but I remember the feeling of missing out. But he's the one who was pretty instrumental. Everybody played a part, but he was pretty instrumental in sticking through and, and um, getting us into the grand final. So that's one of the examples. And he was as happy as anybody about us making it there. Can you share some some insight to those listening today, what you've done engaged in regards to women, women in sport, women in business, mentoring? You've done a lot. You want to talk us through, and you've led some you know, ministerial reviews as well. I guess it goes back to uh, so there's my family saying you know you can always help somebody okay. and 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 my enthusiasm for helping women be treated as equals is sort of knows no bounds. Okay. Uh, I always thought that society as a whole is better off, and if everybody can contribute. There's a whole pool of talent there. And when I grew up in the place I grew up, there were lots of people who didn't think that girls even needed to be educated, you know, because they'll get married and all of that. And and there weren't a lot of ideas that you'd go on to do anything anyway. So I, after I became president of Richmond, it was the first year and the uh, state government asked me to uh, chair a an inquiry into women and girls in sport and recreation. Yeah. So I thought, oh, well, I got some time in the off season. <laughs> I'll help with this. Uh, so it was a year long review and it was, uh, we went around the state. We talked to all sorts of organizations and sport, sporting organizations, um, to young women, to uh, administrators. And we wanted to look at participation and leadership. Some, in the past, some reviews had looked just at leadership. Some had just looked at how can we get more women and girls playing sport. But this was to look at both and to come up with some recommendations because there had been so much work done in the past, but nothing ever happened with it. It just was a report. Okay. And um, so we thought if we keep it sharp and have a few recommendations, it's more likely. And so we had nine and the the state government, uh, John Aaron was the uh, minister for sport and rec at the time, accepted all nine and then put a million dollars into a year-long implementation planning and then rolled it out. But one of the things that we recommended, which was quite, I guess, dramatic or progressive at the time, mm-hmm. was that every sporting organization board, if they wanted money from the state government, had to get 40% women on the board in three years. Yeah, right. Okay. And there was a lot of, oh, you know, we can't do that. We can't do that. It's like, well, if you don't want any state money, that's okay. <laughs> and then about year two, I started seeing little uh, ads pop up in uh, online or somewhere about women who might want to join sporting boards come this weekend. We've got some. And I thought, oh, okay, so they're getting things in order. And lo and behold, it happened. Yeah, and right, okay. Yeah, and so you think was that. Another thing that was recommended was a lot of duplication of effort between health and sport and education, that we needed a central office. Mm. And so um, Victoria was the first state in the country and might still be uh, the only that set up an office of women and girls in sport and started a Change Our Game campaign to uh, 
keep the momentum going. So that was really a rewarding sort of thing. I didn't know when I started. And again, I'm thinking, I know how to run a meeting. I know how to write a report. I don't know anything about state supporting organizations, but it was a great committee that was put together. Mm-hmm. And um, they had people who were athletes, people who had been administrators, people who were academics. There were nine of us, people from around the state. And it was a really great experience. So I did that. Then there's uh, a group called the Minerva Network that's been started mm. for introducing uh, professional sportswomen to business people to help them with their career after sport and what happens. And so I was the uh, inaugural co-chair for Victoria. And so we set that up. It started in New South Wales and Queensland and then came to Victoria. And again, that was about helping people identify and realize what they wanted to do after sport. How's that going? Has that worked out well? It has. It has. I'm no longer co-chairing that. There were so many people who were willing to help and so many um, young athletes who wanted the help. And uh, so so doing the mentor match for that was uh, was really good. And to, uh, I don't think I spoke to any businesswoman who didn't agree to do it. Um, so it was, it's, it's really, and exposes you to people that if you're in sports, you're unlikely to meet and just new networks and, and avenues that opens up. So is Australia thinking the right way in regards to this whole broader issue? Yes. It, as I say, there's still, you know, more work that all of us can do, but, uh, and to keep the momentum up is the big thing. Yeah. Um, and for example, when I became, came onto the Richmond board in 2005, mm-hmm. I think there were six women on AFL boards across the country. And I kept a list because they used to organize dinners for us a couple of times a year, uh, for the, and it started out, you know, we could, very small, we could all meet in one round, one table. And there were no women. There was one woman on the commission then. Now there are three, but I think now there are 37. Yeah across the country. And most boards, you know, you think, well, you have one, but now if you don't have two or three, you're regarded as why not? And some people have said, well, getting women on boards is the easy part of it. And I said, well, let's solve that easy part then, uh, because it does open up to other perspectives and other life experiences being included. And it shows the inclusive nature of things. And um, I think we are, it's slow. And I guess at this stage of my life and my career, I think people have always said, oh, you know, it's building, it'll come. And I thought when I graduated from law school, they said that would be the case, that we'd all be partners in law firms. And all these years later, law firms still haven't solved that because of the business model and that sort of thing. But I've also found that if you want to include women or you want to include multicultural people or indigenous people, you've got to go find them. It's not waiting for people to say, I'll put up my hand. If you think there's some really good people that could add something, just ask them if they will go through the nominations process. They may not be interested at all. But uh, if you wait, it's it's just going to take longer and longer and longer. What was your um, what was your takeaways from the Matildas then? Well, it's pretty exciting, wasn't it? Yeah. I miss them. <laughs> uh, well, it it's shows how things can change when there's um, it's a world event. Yeah, there's money and media, particularly behind it. Mm-hmm. The product is really good. Yep. Now, women playing sport is 
really attractive. Look what the women's cricket team has done, um, women's hockey, and now this, now the AFLW. It's fun to watch. It's exciting to see. But someone has got to uh, get behind it with – we're not always going to have the World Cup. We're going to have people who who have a national competition or a local competition. And it goes to, I guess, showcasing what's there. But the Matildas, I think, made people aware of how good women's sport is and how you can have national pride, but you can just enjoy. I watched matches that had nothing to do with the Matildas, and I hadn't really followed soccer that much, but but I did. I think a lot of people as well. So a lot of people just need to be exposed to women playing sport. Okay. Tricky question for you. Now, you were appointed chair of the Commonwealth Games. Uh-huh. Can you share any light what what's transpired? Now, is anybody going to pick, pick up the Commonwealth Games from what you understand? I was appointed um, just just about a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, I was chair of the organizing committee. And what we were charged with doing was there's a host contract uh, between the state government, Commonwealth Games Federation, Commonwealth Games Australia, and we're charged with implementing that contract. Some other departments of government had parts of it. We had part of it. And we were notified that the contract was going to be canceled. Surprise. And, and it was a budgetary issue. Yeah. Uh, I was surprised and not totally surprised. I mean, I have nothing to do with politics, so I'm not I, – I don't know the political what's going on. But um, but under our budget numbers that we had put together, uh, we needed more money. And we were not the, – the reply was taking longer to get back than – normal. And I thought, mm, you know, it's going to be hard to bring this off in three and a half years because there's so much to do. Because it was predominantly regional too, wasn't it? It's regional, yeah. And just the logistics of that, because taking this on, I thought, and Jerome Weinmar, who is a logistics guy, was the CEO, and uh, and he knows how things work and how government works because he had been involved through COVID. And he'd say, no, we still don't have an answer. And so we started thinking, well, something's going on, you know, something, it, there's just not this push that we need, mm. And uh, but I didn't know it would be a cancellation. Yep. But in the end, um, if, you know, this, if there's no money, there's no money, and and we didn't have the overview of all of the costs, we just knew what our part was going to cost, our, our, our new projections. So I was called and then received the next day received a letter saying to in fact down tools and um that it's been canceled and that um, there's going to be a negotiation about settlement of of any damages and that's where it was i haven't heard anything about anyone taking it no, on nor have I, yeah. but but i wouldn't necessarily uh know but i haven't even you know heard any scuttlebutt about um i would doubt it would be in australia the only question I wonder sometimes, with bearing in mm-hmm. mind the challenges and the costs, no matter what, for the Commonwealth Games, mm-hmm. and there's very few nations left who can afford it. Okay, that's it. That's it. So, are we being silly as a nation in that regard, or was there an opportunity to actually think differently? Did everything have to be in Victoria, in Melbourne historically, or then the region? In this particular case, yeah. we've got Queensland building stuff left, right, and centre. 
Mm. You've got facilities in different parts of the country. Should we convene, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud here and said, right, we're not going to be able to pull this off by putting it in rural Victoria. It's going to be prohibitive, unfortunately, on cost. Mm. But we've won it. Why don't we break with tradition and make it a national play instead of just the the one-off, you know, one-off state or one-off yeah. city? I mean, because otherwise we could lose this forever. Yeah, um, and and I think also that you're right. It's it's expensive to hold any international competition, and the Commonwealth itself has some very poor countries. That's right, and a few pretty wealthy countries, yep. and. I don't know that those wealthy countries necessarily see any benefit of continuing to do this. Yeah. I was I was thinking, why don't they have a permanent site for the Commonwealth Games in one country and don't move it around. Mm. Just have it there and people can, you know, if you if you have a Commonwealth Games Association in your country, you get levied a certain amount and that maintains, but you have a, a set of something, a sh- showground to um, – that's what I was thinking. Why not just make it a permanent place? Why does it have to be moved around? And and I don't know if the Olympics would be the same, but uh, the Olympics themselves will have, you know, it's a very, very expensive undertaking and usually for not much benefit. There's always the talk about tourism and this, but I saw some, some figures, it might have been in the Fin Review a few weeks ago when this happened with the Commonwealth Games about nobody's really made any money on these kinds of international sporting events and we don't know what happened in China so so I don't know I I, I, and the idea was having it regionally was going to be the difference Mm -hmm. and that if um, if it could be done regionally that maybe like in the Caribbean a number of islands could have a few of the events. Yeah. But one thing I found out is usually if it's in one place, they have uh, you know a, a team captain that goes around to all the sports every day. But yeah. if you have them in different places, then you got to have how do you get around to your athlete well being if you if all the swimming's here, so all the Australians are here, and then uh, you have rowing here, and the Australians are over there too, and they're in New South Wales and. So there's those kinds of things which were new. I just hadn't thought about how that has to be organized. But there's a lot of just there are a lot of people required just to get the teams put together and out on the whatever park they're playing on. So uh, so I don't know. It was uh, it was really a wonderful group of people. Great executive team yeah, okay. uh, put together a really uh, exciting program. A lot of work was done, and we were go- one point of difference was the engagement of all the First Nations peoples. We had a First Nations advisory. Uh, everything was, and and with that, we were also going to have connections and themes that went through the Indigenous peoples all across the Commonwealth. That was very exciting to all of us, and and someone else will have to take that up now. RMIT, what are you doing there? Well, I'm the uh, chancellor. Yep. <laughs> and um, and what are you gonna? What's what's going to be the future for RMIT? Well, there's a lot of um, thought and planning into the whole university sector mm, right now. Absolutely. And there's the university accord that's an interim report. It'll be a final report on what government support's going to be there, what courses are going to be emphasized. We last year put out our nine-year strategy, and this is the first three-year part of the nine years, because things have changed so much even with COVID. Before then, it was quite different to have an online learning 
capacity, like people are working, can do it on the weekends or at night, and now everything went online. So what's the future of online learning when every course has an online component mostly these days? The returning to work and teaching, I think maybe a lot of universities thought, do we have too many buildings? Do we need all these buildings because of the way things are going to be structured? Is research going to take priority over teaching? What are the jobs of the future that we need to anticipate now? And RMIT is a really an applied learning institution that's um, very much partners with business and and wants to turn out would have a lot of the learning takes place in having internships with uh, during your academic career, internships with various businesses. So what is um, the future of that under the accord? So with everything sort of up in the air, you know, we're going ahead with what we had planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, lifelong learning is the thing too. People don't keep jobs in the same no. length of time. Yep. And these micro credentials, I, I don't want to get a degree I already have a degree, but I'll, I'd like to take three months and get through two courses on this because that, that, I think that's my next job. Is that the role of university or is that the role of another tertiary form? I thought university was historically was there to engender thinking, challenge. Mm. It's changing a lot. And I was sort of wondering where it's really the concept came from universities to where they are now. Are they still? espousing the same beliefs and values? Well, it's sort of what do you want them to do? And RMIT is what they call a dual-sector university. Mm -hmm. It's higher education and vocational education as well. But even in what we call higher education, which is the traditional sort of degree grant programs, Mm. you know, lots of engineering, architecture, creative arts, is those, those jobs require constant... I guess a constant renewing of your knowledge because it moves so fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll come back and say, well, I need two courses in this okay. because that's the new computer stuff program we use to do all of this engineering work. Yep. Um, then there's vocational education and, and then we need more trades. Yep. And then there's like Melbourne University is uh, higher education and research, but they would say their purpose is different than our purpose. But universities seem with, I guess, the end of sort of the TAFE era mm. that uh, Swinburne, RMIT, turn out lots of people who are the, the applied learners. And, and RMIT started as the working men's college. And it was for people who had trades. The sort of vision of the founder was um, – they would want to learn. And so that was quite revolutionary at the time. And um, so he founded this, and then he went on to uh, give money to Melbourne University to start Ormond College. It's interesting where those come from, but our um, origins are very much in applied learning. Yeah, I sometimes sort of think about all the online verse turning up in the physical, mixing of people, trying to form you in some ways when you're a younger person. You know, you're going to learn to argue, debate in a in the, in the manner as opposed to zooming in, which is totally different. And it's also, you know, you're forming your political views and your international thinking, as you said earlier. If we're mindful of that, or we're starting to lose that a little bit in our universities. 
Yeah. Well, you're exactly right. There's nothing that uh, replaces being with people and exchanging ideas in person. And even just the casual running into instructors yeah. and having a chance to talk to them, making everybody uh, real. Uh, and and the social networks that get formed, sure. the things to do, the um, and that's the basis of the community. It's it was very encouraging to see so many more students uh, back this semester, and that there's sort of a buzz around the place. And uh, because when I came on in at the beginning of 2022, that first year was a bit of little by little by little coming back. And now there seems to be, a, a, among students, a real desire to come back. We have a campus for the past 20 years in Vietnam. And I went over for the graduations in April. And um, the students there, you can't get them to go home. Right. They love being in, at the campus. It's just, it's like, no, we're not going to stay open 24 hours a day. You have to go home. But So that was a bit different. They operated throughout COVID and all of that. But um, but we're seeing it, it gradually come back here. But one thing that's happening, too, with students is because the job market's so good, yep. is people who used to go full-time may be going part-time and have a job as well. So that affects the numbers who come back and all that. But, um, but I think we'll see a, a restoring of that balance, uh, hopefully, in the next academic year. Peggy, what is leadership? You've had, you've had plenty of time to see the good and the bad and the ugly. What actually is leadership to you? Oh, that's not an easy question. <laughs> um, well, I, I always think about why do people want to be leaders? Why do some people want to be a leader? The first thing everybody would say is having a title doesn't make you a leader. I think that um, uh, there's so, some people who who want to be a leader, they think, and then don't want the responsibility, don't want the sort of hard stuff. They just... And leaders, I think, are able to persuade people to accomplish something positive. That is the persuasive nature rather than the dictatorial kind of nature. But I think the best, the best leaders are those who see themselves as servants to the organization and to the people around them. I think the that's the development of because you can't do it all yourself. What you want is to have other people who can do things really well, and you get so much more done, and you can just accomplish so much. And I think that um, the organization matters, the people you bring in matters. The leader's job is to get the best out of everybody. And when you finish, when you leave that organization, it ought to be able to continue those those values and and you hope that you're missed a bit but at the same time you hope that that things continue on on what you've built so what's next for you and i appreciate you've got the role of chancellor at rmit but what else is the longer term that you want to achieve peggy i'll finish up with the commonwealth games we're still doing some tidy up things and i'm also chair of vanguard super which is an investment thing um so that and rmit will sort of see me out to finish this next year. I'll probably think about a bit more. But one thing I've wanted to do um, and I've, I've started is I'd started a couple of books. And so I'd like to think I have a bit of space in my calendar to at least get those finished. I, I wrote a book during COVID mm-hmm. that was, uh, you know, this 
bit of trying to get some structure in the day. Yep. And uh, really enjoyed. It was personally satisfying to finish it. I I had it um, published, but it wasn't for commercial sale. I just gave it to people, so it was self-published. But I, I found at the end of of COVID, I, w- I was sending an email a day. I was doing something fun. And, and I had this – at the end, I thought, I've got a book. And I thought, if you write a page a day – after six months, you got a book. <laughs> um, so, um, so I sort of set myself the goal that I'll finish at least one of them this year, and um, then I'll see about the the next one. I've always enjoyed reading and writing, and um, and so I've always said to myself that you know you will write a book one day. And I think, well, this is maybe the universe speaking that suddenly there's a a bit of time and, uh, and I'll finish that. Okay. And if you were to look back at, well, as you're writing this book, if you were to look back at that young, young girl in those Virginian mountains all those years ago, what advice would you give her now? Oh, just keep that curiosity. Just keep the, um, and keep learning and the world's a big place and you're on the right path. Just keep going. On that, Peggy, it's been a real pleasure today. Thank you for joining us. It's nice talking to you. You've been listening to No Limitations. 